We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Quick-witted, loyal, caring, and so very talented. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome one of my best pals and honorary brothers back to the podcast an actor, former host of the excellent Game Show Network series, Get a Clue, and a longtime improv teacher at Second City, plus a writer, producer, entrepreneur, and gifted impressionist who regularly turns my voicemail into the funniest comedy club in LA. Rob Belushi is a man who wears many hats. In the past, you've heard him share his insights as a knowledgeable film lover, in his very first episode way back in 2020, and then twice last year as well, first lending his expertise as the host of Get a Clue for an episode I did on game show movies. And then later in our season two finale, Rob joined me along with his inspiring, intelligent, very lovely mother, Sandy, to tease and interrogate her both about her personal life as well as her passion for her favorite film, Warren Beatty's Reds. Rob, my friend, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing and how's spring treating you? Wow. I mean, after that intro, I feel much better about myself and my worth. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I'm course. doing well. I'm, I'm so excited to, to speak to you and thanks for having me on. It's, it's such an honor. You do such incredible work on this podcast with really interesting people. So... Mm. Thank you so much for doing this. I was excited to have you back, of course. And so many of the people are our mutual friends. Rob is in my game nights because I am that nerdy that I make all my friends play games with me. And uh, Rob was one of the first to go like, yes. And, um, (laughs) you know, they're hilarious, especially we can't wait for Rob to be the one to act out clues. And I know everyone loves you. So I know they're going to be excited to hear you today. Oh, well, um, thank you. And, you know, I'm glad you said film lover instead of film expert, because um, <laughs> what we're talking about today, I, I, these are four of my favorite films, and I yeah. definitely come at them from, um, from the point of a, an effusive and loving, loyal fan. So I'm, I probably won't be unearthing anything people don't know, but 
boy, I'm excited to talk with you about them. Of course. Well, I know you have a lot going on both personally and professionally, and I don't want to overstep and share things I'm not supposed to. So Rob, please, (laughs) what can you tell us about what you've been up to recently and what we can expect from you in the future? Oh, great. Um, You know, um, I I guess I'll just say like my... I'm very grateful to have a wonderful family that is continuing to grow. And um, I have mm-hmm. a couple projects that um, look, uh, look, they're looking good. Yes. But you know. Yeah. Knock on wood. We're business. not going to. Yes. Yeah. If it's not done and dusted, um, anything can go away. So some some exciting things I've been working on for a long time. Hopefully in the next month or two, we'll have some um, really, uh, you know, firm news on that. And then I, I guess in June or early July, uh, a friend of mine, John Barinholtz, and I did a um, an independent animated show called The Glue Factory Show. Mm-hmm. And that is about horses who tend to be mistreated and abused that are sent to a safe world where they can do whatever they'd like. And um, they, of course, they're what in what is supposed to be a utopia uh, come to terms with the fact that they may have just recreated late stage capitalism in this (laughs) (laughs) perfect world. So um, that should be coming out in June or July. And there's a lot of fun voice talent on there. Everyone from Pat Nozzle to, to John and myself, who play the leads, and then Tara Strong, Carlos Salzrocki, James Adomian. I mean, so many people. Um, it'll Danson. be exciting. And just on YouTube, Ted Danson, yes. He, yes. He, he's he's the greatest guy in the world. Uh, he comes on as well. And um, Nikki Sullivan. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Bobby Lee, Bobby Moynihan. Really oh, wow. fun people. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that'll be so, great. Yeah, it'll be fun and it's free. It's going to be on YouTube. They're just 12-minute little fun, stupid episodes and hope hope to make you laugh. You will particularly like James Adomian. Okay. I'm not going to tell you anything more, but he's not doing De Niro, so your other favorite. Okay. Ooh, I'm excited. All right. Yeah, I yeah, can't wait for that. Well, Rob and I share very similar taste in movies. And frequently cite or text each other when we're watching a film that the other one loves. Sometimes if I say I'm pushing play on a favorite of Rob's, like Mammoth's Spartan, I will suddenly receive like 10 lines from the movie (laughs) typed out in my text. Or maybe even an impression or so of Daniel Day-Lewis's Daniel Plainview. If I'm watching There Will Be Blood and Rob happens (laughs) to know about it. There are a lot of different directions we could have gone in for our conversation today, but as one of the filmmakers and an era of movies we seem to be most in sync on is the endlessly innovative Steven Soderbergh in his exceptionally clever late 90s period. This seemed like the best theme for us to dive into right now. So taking a closer look at the incredible four-picture run that he had, starting out in 1998 of Out of Sight, The Limey, which was released one year later in the jackpot cinema year of 1999, and then the masterful groundbreaking one-two punch in 2000 of Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. We'll go deeper into the films one by one in just a moment. 
But before we do that, I would love to know more about what you think Steven Soderbergh's strengths are as a filmmaker and why in his superlative, insanely prolific career, where he's constantly reinventing himself, this era of movie making particularly sticks out? Great question. I mean, what, uh, it's a pleasure to talk Soderbergh with yeah. the, the woman who was awarded awards when she was a wee teen. Isn't that correct? Uh, I was actually mid-20s because I started okay. college early. Then I kind of took some time off. But yes, for those listening who aren't aware, I did write so around maybe 24, 25 at the time. I wrote my thesis on sex, lies, and videotape, and I received a humanity scholarship for it. So I kind of stuck with early Soderbergh, the first film he made. Yes. And, you know, not to talk about you physically, but anyone who knows Jen knows that she um, does not age, but there is a <laughs> picture hidden of her somewhere that ages for her. So Aww. 24, 14, 55, however old you are. Yeah, I'm 76. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> great. Um, you know, I think part of my opinion is part, part of the answer is it was in your question that he he constantly reinvents himself. But I think these four films um, uh, rounding out the 90s really solidified him as a master. And you can tell because all the, you know, it was hit after hit, even though The Limey was not a hit. But then, then they went into all the Oceans Eleven and yeah. all those really huge, more blockbuster entertainment. Yeah, um, he asserted himself in, I would say, four different types of films that are have a lot of um, fun and heartbreaking connections in terms of theme and character. Yep, and he used uh, his actors like scalpels i mean yeah all yeah. these films are go ahead oh i was gonna say he showed us new sides of them and you know he really employs actors just so well it kind of reminds me of altman or paul thomas anderson similarly yeah they are character actor directors essentially yeah yeah and you know what he does in all of these films is I think, in my opinion, you know, take a theme and a mood and expound on it so deeply that it, for me, seeing these movies when I was 18, yeah. 19, and 20, um, I must have watched them a hundred times each. Mm -hmm. They never, ever left me. They stay with me. Some of the, you know, the lines in these films, I continue to think about to this day. And yeah. Um, he's so effective and he was so effective so often. And I think, um, they, they are so of the time, yes. you know, and, and what he's doing with color in these movies is so fun and interesting it was, you know, not had never been done, but is so artfully and specifically used. It's so nineties, mm -hmm. but watching them all these years later, you just realize these films are timeless and um, yeah, still very relevant. Uh, even in, in like what what might have been like topical issue picture uh, situations, like with Brockovich and traffic. Um, it's still, it's the same. It's the same exact story all these years later. So yeah, dude hit a, this is a, a late '90s grand slam. He hit every or 
he hit every base. What is the sports metaphor? Uh, hit for the cycle. Yes. He hit for the cycle. Yeah. 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 They are like avant-garde crime movies, some of them. Mm. And also their anti whatever the genre approach you would expect them to take is going to take. Like it's not a courtroom movie, Aaron Brockovich. It's it's about her. And it's about uh the limey. He does these experimental things where, but he also makes sure that you're emotionally involved because so many of his movies center on people who don't really fit in with their environments. They're outsiders or they're at odds. There's always a shot. Usually they're isolated in the frame, like um, Foley at the beginning of Out of Sight with the tie and it's, you know, the freeze frame or Aaron Brockovich outside the building after her job interview goes awry before the car crash in Aaron Brockovich. Um, there's usually a shot where they're kind of like, these are people who are up against it, who don't fit in. And, you know, he kind of frowns on being a filmmaker who gravitates to the same thing, but he does seem to be fascinated by people first and people who are struggling or dealing with something bigger than themselves and how they're able to adapt. And you can see his love of like, the 70s era of filmmaking and also further back than that art house experimental world films we'll talk about i'm sure as we get into the limey and some of these other ones but yeah do you happen to remember the first steven soderbergh movie you ever saw i think it was out of sight was it okay i i think i saw out of like i might have seen sex lies in videotape or something but it didn't and i know this is sacrilege i don't remember it hitting me as hard and then after out of sight i went and watched kafka and schizopolis yeah. and uh, uh um sex lies and and then i would go on to see you know some fun weird ass like bubble and yeah what he was gonna do yep no yeah yeah, I yeah. think so. Out of yeah. sight hit me, and then and then he followed up with the limey, and I was just like, "Oh, this is your this guy. Dude. Yeah, this is my guy." Yeah. Yes, my first one was King of the Hill. I remember my parents watching Sex Lies and Videotape. My mom worked at a library, and she used to bring home videos all the time. And so I have a vivid memory of Andy McDowell wearing black and being on the mm. TV, and like me walking in, and that was one of the times they were like, "No, go in the other room." So, um, cause usually, which was parents, rare in your house from what I it understand. was, yeah, my yeah. parents were pretty liberal, but sex lies. <laughs> it was like a no, um, but <laughs> King of the Hill, man, that was the first one for me. I love that film. I remember Roger Ebert talking about it and showing the clips from it. And just, I fell in love with that movie, especially because I saw it around the time I was the same age as the protagonist and what he's going through and the depression and, oh, it just breaks your heart. If you're listening and you've not seen King of the Hill, see it. Criterion put out an edition um, a few years ago and it's stunning. And um, then I did see Kafka. I did not like Kafka. It took me forever to find Schizopolis. It was really funny. I became like a Soderbergh devotee and obsessive. And I would call places back in Minneapolis, like, you know, do you have it? Do you, nobody had this movie. Then I moved to Arizona and I started on the phone again because I'm one of those people. Like I 
you know, it was great because we were suddenly closer to Hollywood maybe, or just there was a bigger film interest in this area. I'm not sure what it was, but suddenly video stores had things like the dogma movies or day for night. And there was a video store that carried Schizopolis and I like got in my car. I didn't realize how far away it was. It was a little far, but it was worth it. <laughs> so I did chase down Schizopolis. I had to drive forever, but it was, it was worth it. So yeah, I am a fan and I think it'll be really cool to delve into all these different sides of Soderbergh. It's so funny. You talk, I was in, in Los Angeles. I was in, I mean, in high school, sorry, I was yeah. in Los Angeles and we, we had a video store called Vidiots, which is now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Reopening. Um, and they, they had, it was like a specialty, you know, I'm sure yeah. you, you know what it is, but you know, I'm 17 years old and they have like Soderbergh and they'll have all his movies you know, mm -hmm. each kind of auteur set up and staff pick. So I got to, to go in there and kind of get, God, how cool. It was, it was yeah. a cool, and it was right next to a bowling alley. So oh my uh, gosh, that yeah, would have been like get, so fun. It was so fun. I mean, as we'll probably talk about in traffic, I was an unsober teen and, you know, <laughs> we would go, pick up some videos and then go bowling and then go watch the videos. And some of them would be weird and some of them would be, <laughs> would be great. Yeah. 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 TM, they call me TMI Belushi. So uh, you, you can always just hit pause on the podcast or fast forward to uh, no. when Jen's saying something interesting again. No. <laughs> well, kicking things off, we have my favorite Steven Soderbergh movie. And the one that put the most pressure on him professionally and creatively, given just how high profile it was in 1998. I'm talking, of course, about the Scott Frank penned adaptation of Elmore Leonard's novel Out of Sight, starring George Clooney as a charismatic, intelligent, yet compulsive bank robber who finds himself falling in love with Jennifer Lopez's beautiful strong-willed federal marshal Karen Sisko, who he meets when he breaks out of jail with the help of his buddy, aptly named Buddy, played by Bing Rames, and then has a flirtatious chat with her after they impulsively kidnap her just long enough to hightail it away from the prison, starting the bond over their mutual love of 70s movies in the trunk of the car. After their encounter, both realize, damn it, there might be something there. Co-starring Don Cheadle, Steve Zahn, Albert Brooks, Michael Keaton, Luis Guzman, Catherine Keener, Viola Davis, and the great Dennis Farina, just to name a few. It's a sexy, funny, scary, stylish, romantic crime drama. And I know you dig it as much as I do. So let's dive in. Talk to me about Out of Sight. I mean, you mentioned it before. The movie starts with like this tremendously beautiful visual pun that yes. made me fall in love imme immediately. It starts... Before the title flashes, it starts, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in soft focus in, in one of your, you know, 70s style zooms across a corporate kind of office area across a parking lot. And then it, it, it um, focuses on Jack Foley, who we only know as George Clooney at this point. He pulls off his tie and throws it on the ground in midway. It freeze frames. Yes. And he is literally out of sight while the title pops up. And I, from that point on, it's perfection. <laughs> yeah, yes, he, he has it's a so couple Godard. Great, yeah, 
yeah, it's, it's fun. You know, I think my biggest takeaway uh, on a rewatch of this movie, besides to me, the sexiest scene in film um, and how great the characters are in the dialogue. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have so many just quotations written down here, but is how fun it is. Yes. And he does a great job of not um, making a comedy, but never in any of those highly tense dramatic moments, there's only a couple that really played for drama, even Mm -hmm. in the, the face off with Snoop and Jack on the top of the stairs at the very end. There's a little, there's a, there's a little tag that, that keeps the audience okay to have fun. And that is, you know, you ain't got an extra clip I could borrow, do you? Yeah. He says, fresh out. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. they're about to kill each other point blank. Um, I love all the visual puns. I love how he sets places with uh, color filters and yeah, palettes. Detroit is that gunmetal gray color on purpose. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. You have an auto town. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, he, he does, he's, Soderbergh is economical and he does this with it, the limey as well. You know, he sets up Detroit with just a bunch of quick cuts of yeah. Detroit's greatest hits, which is, you mm-hmm. know, the fist statue, the GM office literally hits Ville USA and that yeah. color with the Isley brothers playing. You yeah. Know? It's perfect. And that song is so fitting because, you know, um, it's, time is truly wasted there's no guarantee and then mm-hmm. it goes on about you know fighting the power but that's that's jack's big pitch yeah to karen cisco like um Let's take a time out or it's about the time we have yeah exactly you you see someone on the street and for a minute there's recognition and then yes. that person goes away you know it's take advantage it's of so, the time yeah yeah take advantage of the time and I love that timeout scene too, because that's mm-hmm. another wonderful visual pun that um, becomes less funny and more sexy when they take a timeout. And he, the freeze frame theme he's been building throughout the movie comes full circle with that moment where they freeze in their little love moment. And, and it is a, a literal timeout of, the, of yeah. the movie and it fades to black and then they wake up to the reality and the harsh bathroom lights and she's she's upset and feeling you know yeah stupid. exactly yeah no it's beautiful we studied that scene in our editing unit in one of the film classes that i took i think we probably watched that sequence in almost every film class for a while there that i was taking because it is so powerful i know he got the idea uh, we are talking in case you haven't seen the movie in a while about the scene where Karen and Jack meet up at a hotel bar. Um, Jack surprises her in Detroit. And then it kind of cuts back and forth between their conversation to when they take it upstairs and then leads into them in the bedroom. He got the idea for that for um, or from the movie Don't Look Now with Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. That I mean, that has one of the most famous sex scenes of all time where people are actually wondering if it was unsimulated or not. And there's a lot of controversy and stories about Don't Look Now. But it, there's a cut in there of them like getting ready for a party or something. 
And it kind of goes back and forth between intimate moments. And so he thought that worked out well. And I also remember an interview where he was talking about he personally doesn't like to shoot sex scenes or see sex scenes. He was saying for a while there, at least that was his opinion at the time, because he thought then when you see like Jennifer Lopez naked or George Clooney naked, you're suddenly checked out of the movie. You're not looking at Karen or Jack anymore. You're like, that's Jennifer Lopez naked or that's George Clooney. And he said it kind of breaks the world that we're creating. He said, maybe it's just my weird sexual hangup, but for whatever reason, um, that was his approach. And I think it makes it far sexier, kind of takes it to an old Hollywood idea of sometimes those moments were a lot hotter for what you didn't see, like an out of the past than what you do see. And yeah, it's a mesmerizing scene. I I love everything about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I love that you said that. It, uh, whether you agree or not with his yeah, version exactly. of sex on film, like I mean, he's absolutely successful in that scene. Yeah. Creating, yeah. Let it, letting the chemistry between the characters and the actors behind them bring mm-hmm. that flame, you know, that, and I love how he marks it. He marks Foley anytime he's about to heat up or take action or make some kind of decision. He, he shows us that, that empty Zippo lighter gesture because he doesn't yes. smoke, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But he just kind of signals to us. And that's his introduction. Yep. He uses reflections in this movie. Very, very, well. very mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know it's important because it's the final shot of the film is a reflection of, uh, of a federal structure around Karen sitting shotgun in the transpo van. And she kind of... Dr- drives out of the rigidity of that arch of the federal building. And you're like, Oh, maybe she is changing just as Jack is kind of changing as well. And maybe there is hope that they can get together, you know, again. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of reflections. There's a lot of looking out of the corner of people's eyes, which is something that actually works with the the prison motif too, because you, you know, you always have to have your head on a swivel essentially because you don't know what's coming around the corner, which we see early on, my goodness, with um, Don Cheadle's character. And that goes through the whole movie also in their relationship where they're kind of like coming at each other from angles. Uh, I mean, he Mm -hmm. is going head on at her, of course, but she's trying to figure out, do I like him or not? And so I think that really works. (laughs) The supporting cast for this is phenomenal. Steve Zahn kind of breaks my heart. I love that they used Albert Brooks in an unorthodox way. Uh, my favorite. Oh, and <laughs> Michael Keaton. My goodness. It's like so cool to see his Ray Nicolette character back from Jackie Brown. But my favorite is Don Cheadle. He's always the scene stealer. He was a family favorite in my household because my parents actually saw him before he was super famous. He was on the stage and he was in some plays at the Guthrie in Minneapolis and my parents would go there and they remembered him and uh, yeah, he's phenomenal. Uh, uh, all those. Yeah. They're, they're all so wonderful and important. And yeah. Guzman too. Oh my gosh. Off yes. his ass. Like so good. You were his box. Yeah. <laughs> yes. a, a nice bag. Mira. I got a pee like, yes. uh, when he's on the floor. Like, no uh, getting arrested in the funniest way possible um yeah 
You're right, Glenn Michaels too. His introduction is "Whoa, fuck, it's Glenn." Yes, you know? yes. Um, it's such a great name too. Um, no, I mean and Don Cheadle. Yeah, no, uh, with Steve Zahn, that wasn't terribly long after he made like uh, that thing you do either. So you were looking at him, thinking, you know, this is the funny guy from that thing you do, or or the dramatic moment in reality bites because he kind of stole some scenes in that movie yeah, as well and uh then you see this and you're like wow steve is on really can kind of do anything yep i think he's yeah every scene he's in he does his job and like yes it's so easy to think he you know he's just god you gotta love him he's just yep. like a lovable surviving kind of cowardly if if he was more self-aware he would be cowardly but he's just like a cockroach you know yes. like moving from gig to gig and that is the, the moment where like the most uh kind of super not superficial as in Steve Zahn didn't bring a whole world to this guy but like the least emotionally invested in the the moment to moment of his life yeah that that's like the the scariest moment of the whole film is when he's brought face to face with his choice to engage with Snoop and um, Kenneth. And they, they bring him to Eddie Solomon's house to commit this murder, you know, this yeah. um, wow. homophobic That's murder. Yeah. Such and a tough just, moment. Yeah. His, his glasses come off for the first time and he is face to face with his choices and watching that play out on Zahn is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things go gray when they move to Detroit and that's when things get for real and scarier. Much scarier. Um, yeah. And another scene that's very terrifying. I mean, of course, with the maid at the end, but um, is the scene with um, Kenneth, the brother-in-law of Don Cheadle's character, um, who is basically starting to let us know he's going to assault the Jennifer Lopez character. I mean, we know Karen Cisco can handle herself. And so it's a really great moment of you wanted to tussle, we tussled. But yeah, there there's a little element of danger that keeps increasing the more you get into this film. And it gets very scary in places. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's great because even though we're we're protected because Karen has told us she's a federal, mar- uh, a yeah, federal yeah. marshal and she can take care of himself. Later, Mm-hmm. Uh, is the actress uh, Nancy Travis who plays the maid? No, uh, Nancy She's Allen. Right. Yes, from RoboCop, right? Yeah, and um, she was also in Blowout and Dressed to yeah. Kill. Yeah. Yes. Oh gosh, yes. I mean, we are terrified for, for her. her. Yeah. And I just I remember uh, just on this last one, answering that door and then saying that she was alone in the house. With four oh dudes. Yep. I can't like that. I, I think people like brush over that moment of how incredibly brave that woman is. Yep. But also how much she's in love with Dick the Yeah. Dick the Dick Ripper. Ripley. Yes. Yeah. 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 Like, I know. I really appreciated um, you know, I mean, yes, I'm a feminist, but I did appreciate that moment when George Clooney goes in there and he does say what kind of man lets a woman answer, yeah, the door at a time like this, especially when it is scary ass dudes who, yeah. I mean, Ripley knows good things aren't gonna be coming to the door, but he is a coward and 
puts uh, the woman he's having an affair with to be his shield, essentially. Yeah, a coward and a wig wearing corrupt fraud with veneers. I mean, his character makes so much sense and it's so perfect. And just what what Soderbergh does with the star power in this is so great. And and I think one of the ways he makes Karen, obviously she's a badass with a shotgun and um, has a great relationship with her father, but her her non-judgmental and easy empathy with the other women in the film who just have smaller yes. parts Catherine makes you Keener. really Catherine Keener, Viola Davis, the yeah. server at the bar, they exchange oh, a yes. small, mm-hmm. a small laugh. Like they get each other. These are people from different uh, points of view and environments. And she has no problem talking to them as human beings every step of the way. That is such a good point. And when I was watching it this time, I was kind of zeroing in on, other elements too, besides her interactions with some of the women, especially Catherine Keener. I love that whole thing. Like you need to get dressed. I mean, it's just very, very funny because she's going to protect her and Keener's all nervous, but we do see Karen get very amped up and nervous a little bit before Guzman breaks in there, which is a good moment. But uh, one thing I love is that it lets us know how she's sometimes treated by her other colleagues, her male colleagues, especially, you know, to get on the task force or them kind of undervaluing her or thinking they're above her. Um, And also her relationships in the past, like she dated a bank robber and um, also, you know, her relationship with her father is so funny. Like her dad is able to read right into her. He kind of has the subtle way of chiding her for her taste in men of giving a couple men um, maybe more chances than they should. Like Keaton is allegedly separating from his wife, but they still live in the same house, but she's involved with him. And, you know, is Jack Foley a better bet? Well, you know, (laughs) these are the men that Karen seems to be attracted to. And I think it says a lot about her personality that she does want to see the best in people, but also be cautious. Yeah. but God, there's so much there. Yes, absolutely. And it's so clear that Daniel character and his kind of like frat boy task force, how ineffectual he, yes, that voice is incredible. Yes, That guy is amazing. But um, I love that, that she, you know, she listens to the women who are speaking to her and it's probably a piece of that has to do with the fact she's, she has to do so much to prove her value. And Daniel's yeah. never shot anyone or gone primary through the door. And yet he's the leader of the task force. There's great yes. hypocrisy there. There is so much. Like she's the one who has to sit in the lobby essentially while it's going on. But the the takedown of the door makes me laugh so hard because I'm someone <laughs> with like cops in my family. And it's just, I remember watching this with, with a, man who became a police officer later and it was hilarious to see like be advised we are approaching the door and like he keeps doing this again and be again advised, we're be blowing advised, the, the door, door. Yes. <laughs> yeah and uh meanwhile all the action is going on in the elevator and it's just human drama and karen is there in the middle of it and it's great yeah and she's left her stamp even on that entry remember she's like you're going in with a ram yeah you know, these it makes metal a doors a lot of noise like, yeah yeah think about what good it does that mm-hmm. that's uh 
just to bring it, I, fi- I finally found it to bring it back to Farina's relationship with her oh, is uh, he never judges her. No, you know? yeah, he, he, he doesn't her. lecture her. He he does let her know like these cowboy cops who drink too much and cheat on their wives. Like, you know, he wants better for her in that department, but he doesn't, you know, put his foot down. I mean, she's a grown woman, but yes, he doesn't want to judge her. He knows that his daughter can take care of herself and he just wants what's best. Yeah. That was it. That was the line. That's how these hot shots are. Yes. <laughs> all of them. I love his Chicago accent. I mean, it's Farina. He's not going to be able to lose that. Well, I mean, three things real fast about Farina on that is one, when Foley said he's got a cop's face and it's he like, does. that's yeah. a fact because he was, he a, was cop. a cop. Um, the other thing was, when they're looking at the newspaper and she's like, he doesn't even look like that. He looks like, and then she looks at her dad and you just see the chin. Yeah. And you understand that like, Oh, there's a piece of Foley that is her dad, even though it might be on the other side of the, not her dad, but like the type of man she's attracted to. And then she doesn't mention it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And you also see that a little bit with Foley, like when she is pretending she is Celeste, in the hotel bar and he said, and she says a line like, cause she's role-playing. Yeah. They, they don't like me cause I'm a girl or something. And he says, is that how you see yourself as a sales rep, as a girl? I don't have a problem with it, but you know, you can see that maybe Foley and her dad do have that in common of they take her seriously. Unlike mm-hmm. these hot shots that surround her. Yeah. And that is, that's attractive and it shows respect. Yep. Very seriously. I love that you said that. Um, I, the the cut into the when she when they go back to her room mm-hmm. in um, that our you know our favorite sexless yeah uh, sex scene mm-hmm. begins when he t- when they break the touch barrier. Yeah, he touches her knee, and it it just harkens back to his hand on her kind of hip area which she looks car. at yep. in the trunk. Right. And mm-hmm. that's the first time she, she just clocks it and you can see that it feels different than it should feel. Yep. You know, she even tells her dad in a nice way, even though when he's like clearly hitting on her, you know, what would it be mm-hmm. like if we met under disconcerns? And yes. she's like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. And he, they just Nothing keep chatting. Happen. Yeah. 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 But it, it, it goes towards the end, the, the the final scene. Well, not the final scene, but like the the resolution of the, the shootout at at Ripley's is so sad. Mm-hmm. It's so sad because you know he says, "No more pretending." You know yeah. this this is what it is, and the music from that love scene start the score yes. from the love scene starts playing, and she shoots him. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's devastating. Um, it plays out far more dramatically than it did in the book because I had read the book, which had come out, I think, just two years before this movie. And, mm. um, you know, I love Leonard, he's one of my favorite writers. Uh, but it was a little cutesy. There was uh, there were too many jokes at the end, I think, between Snoop and Jack and things like that. And I just thought that the way that Scott Frank 
and Soderbergh play that with the actors. It makes it tender and it does bring back these subtle clues from earlier scenes in a way that, yeah, I love so much. And the music is excellent. Dave Holmes, uh, David Holmes' score is so good. Oh, uh, it's maybe my favorite score ever. All the playfulness, the funkiness, and then that, yeah, so that moment and inverting that intimacy mm-hmm. when she's got to take him down, you know. I can't shoot you. You did. You shot me. Yes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it's a love story. And it is. it's such a sad one because it's about having things that we can't have and mm-hmm. looking at your life. And th- this is a theme that kind of runs through his characters is looking at what you've not done or what, what is passed by you. Yeah, um, or the opportunities the that you, yeah. yeah and when she's walking away after shooting him and it just holds on him staring at her you know uh with that look it's just Crossing. he sees yeah yeah he sees love walking away um mm-hmm. Soderbergh handles Clooney's star power and celebrity so well and yeah, because this was at the height of the ER craze, essentially, was, you know, this was kind of one of the early things that really launched him, along with that Batman movie that he made. And Jennifer Lopez hadn't really done too terribly much either. But my God, I mean, you see this and you see what she is capable of with the right script, the right character. Their chemistry is so good. Uh, It's just like two movie stars or you see them, they have it. And um, but they're also just consummate performers, which is what we're going to see later on in um, the other films that we're talking about, especially Traffic, which uses movie stars in unorthodox ways as well. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to move there, but we are introduced with Jack Foley and we fall in love with him as he's robbing a bank yeah. in a kind, nonviolent, charismatic way. Mm-hmm. The cause of this woman's fear also comforting her in that moment. It's just a weird way to like save Meet the cat, him. you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Trying to let her know, like, you're doing fine smile. You know, you have a pretty smile. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> And then yes. when he's in the, you know, the way they disrobe is so innocent. Like they both take off their clothes and look at each other and bear everything to one another, mm-hmm. like kids almost. And then afterwards, his look of like, you know, you can't be, you can't do three falls and be that smart, you know, yeah. it's just a great, he's, he looks beautiful. I mean, mm-hmm. he's in the bed, his shirt's off. He's so vulnerable. Yeah, and, and in the background, I mean, just what they do with shadow and light in that moment. Yeah. There's so much texture in this whole movie. I mean, yes. the snow, the reflections. Remember when they're shooting when they're in Dick's office with the uncut diamonds, they shoot low angle and you see that wonderful green ceiling all the time. Yeah, and the gorgeous the, fish tank. And the t- you can see him kind of experimenting. He was doing it in The Underneath, which was his last huge movie. And the one that really kind of made him realize what he didn't want to do anymore. And then he made Schizopolis to kind of like fall in love with filmmaking, guerrilla style, run and gun approach. 
um, the way he had when he was younger. And then, you know, he made this and it shows you, it shows you what he's going to do later with color and uh, with texture and filmmaking style. And you can kind of see him wanting to do that even as far back as Kafka in the way that employed some, some color, but he was not sure what he was fully doing yet. He was still taking chances and learning as he was going. And yeah. This film is a masterpiece. It is. It really is. He's in, and with the fit, you said the fish, like it's such a, another great pun. Like we're introduced with the, the, the fish murder with, um, yeah. Snoop and, <laughs> in the and then he's got the fish tank in his office at the at the office building and this big fish and he, of course he loves fish he's a slippery yes. corrupt fuck you know what i mean yeah like, pardon the f word i'm so sorry oh you're fine yeah i'm all hopped up like like karen cisco you know because when she gets worked up she chews nicorette and i'm maybe you can hear me chopping on it right now <laughs> like, a, <laughs> like a loser That's but okay. um, you know what you're she's amazing too. yeah she's perfect and beautiful. And when she delivers lines, like it's okay, you can blame me if you want. I don't mind with her head back and that smile. Mm-hmm. It's just, this is a movie star, you know, yeah. it's, you just can't help but love her. And then, you know, she has this flaw of unavailable or risk-taking <laughs> or outlaw. Yeah. And they're both drawing the risks. Yep. And her dad, you know, well, you know what I was thinking? You could have a nice time with him on the ride down, like picking it up or your interlude or whatever it is you call it left off. And then you could throw him in the shit house. You know, he's like, he sees that in her. He accepts it. He's like, well, have a little fun while you're doing something that's totally impossible. You know? Yeah. He loves both sides of her. Yep. He knows that his daughter like loves this guy, but she's also at the end of the day, she's going to uphold the law. Yes. And that's Karen. Yeah. That's Karen. And that's what this movie is a lot about choices too, you know, Mm -hmm. going, going after what you want. And the, her line after that is he knew what he was doing. Nobody forced him to rob banks. I'm like Mm -hmm. the Farina's line to her, my little girl, the tough tough babe. babe. Yeah. Makes me cry. (laughs) But also Jack says, you know, when they have a gun on you, you still have a choice too. This it's a lot about choices and what are you going to choose to value and what are you going to pursue? And you you should be getting away from your jailbreak. Instead, you're looking through IDs and a purloined Chanel purse because that's what he's after, you know? Yeah, he's he's after calling her. hotels. That's one of my favorite moments. He like pulls out the phone book just starts going alphabetically asking for Karen Cisco. It's great. Yes. Well, we love that movie. I think. Yeah. Yeah. One last thought. Yeah. We've spent a lot of time on it and I'm so sorry. Um, That's okay. I think another thing that Soderbergh does artfully is um, really leans into diversity and balance um, with his stars and his supporting actors and brings you know, like it's really brought to an obvious degree when it's Jack and Buddy and White Boy Bob and Snoop, and it's just parallel, yeah, King and Queen kind of chessboard in that fifty-fifty. And I love, I love that aspect of this of this film. Yeah, you can cut that if that yang. sounds really stupid. No, yeah, the yin and yang is perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, it shows like, their opposite sides. Um, they're 
opposite or mirrored images reversed. Yep. Yeah. There's, there's Adele DeLisi and Moselle, Mm -hmm. you know, there's Kenneth and Steve and Glenn Michaels, like everything is balanced. Um, It's wonderful. It really is. Yeah. And you could also say maybe Ripley might be the equivalent of Daniel, the the task force guy too. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody who holds a power position over you who really isn't that with it. Yes. Yeah. And then Sam, you know, the movie ends with Samuel L. Jackson. I mean, everyone. How, how do you? Yeah. How do you end a movie better than that? <laughs> <laughs> you really don't. Hajira. Yes. Well, okay, Rob, you ready? It is time to tell me about Jenny. Not this Jenny, though, because that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. We're not doing that. I'm talking about the dead Jenny from Steven Soderbergh's meditative, hypnotic, experimental 70s art film style spin on the revenge movie that is 1999's The Limey. After getting out of prison, aging thief Terrence Stamp leaves England and comes across the pond to L.A. in order to find out what exactly happened to his daughter, who allegedly died in a car accident late at night forming an alliance with two of the people closest to his daughter, including Luis Guzman and Leslie Ann Warren, he becomes especially drawn to the much older, wealthy and powerful, potentially shady music producer Terry Valentine, played by Peter Fonda, who his daughter was in a romantic relationship with at the time of her death. Written by Soderbergh's Kafka scribe Lem Dobbs, this is an avant-garde crime movie that didn't get its due in 1999, but has become something of a cult classic in the years since. So tell me, Rob, about Jenny, obviously, but also when you first saw The Limey. I did a summer program at NYU called Sight and Sound, and I made a short film that absolutely ripped off The Limey 100%. And if Mr. Soderbergh is listening, <laughs> and somehow he saw that short film, <laughs> because that the walk, the him walking intercut with action, walking in front of the large brick wall. He's so small up against this big machine kind of vibe is so striking to me. It's, it's like the shot of the prison on the lower third and out of sight with the blue sky and the tower. Mm-hmm. It's one of those shots in the Soderbergh movie that I never forget. And it's, it's him slowly walking towards his, his mission. Um, in the warehouse. Uh, I love it. Yeah. yeah so I guess of, I saw it in high school um, yeah. or at the end of high school as well, but it blew my mind. Absolutely. And you know, what's cool about it is in the decade of Reservoir Dogs, which opens with that credit sequence of them kind of walking by like a wall. It's, it's the opposite of that. It's not just a cool group of like men who move in packs. Like Terrence Stamp is a man on his own, on his mission to do this. He is somebody who is kind of transient, like uh, just like the film is with its timeline that keeps jumping around and going different places and moves back and forth in the, the chronology of what we're seeing. I first saw it on video. I had missed it or maybe it played at the art house by me, but probably for like a week because 1999 was insane. We had a different... Um, group of masterpieces every week. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look up 1999 and you'll be overwhelmed thinking that all these movies opened at the same time, but they did. So I didn't see it until like video and was an instant fan. Yes. 
I love that you said uh, that's such a interesting um, revelation, you know, in, in comparison to Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, he is in that shot. He is alone and heartbroken with the, mm-hmm. the only thing he can cling to is the action he's about to take. Yes. And this movie kind of unlocked for me on this last watch in a new way with the end, with him going back to hit, you know, that what, what's the movie that they sampled? Poor cow, which is Ken Loach's film. I have not seen it, but I did track down an import. So I can't wait for that to arrive later this month. Yes. And I guess it's the limey. So we can, we can take it anywhere we want in terms of tense, you know, I'd like to start at the end that the idea, you know, he's singing, he's young, he's full of love and innocent. He's, he's impossibly beautiful. Yes. And he's singing that song. Oh Lord. And, um, he's saying freedom is a word I rarely use without thinking of the time when I was loved. And you just see that this whole, the only love, the only person, and they had a complicated relationship, but the only love on this earth for this character, um, Wilson was Jenny. Yes. And, you know, he mentions I had, I had friends turned out they weren't my friends, you know, Mm -hmm. and he did another bid and he has no connection really to anyone around him. And that shot of him walking from that warehouse is the loneliness of a man utterly alone on this earth. Now that his, his love has been extinguished, which is the only good thing he's ever done is have this daughter. And so we go to the beginning of the, the movie and it opens in black with just a voice saying, tell me about Jenny. And it's the whole film is just, we learn we're to learn about this ghost and to try to grasp her again through this perilous and ultimately meaningless mission to avenge mm-hmm. her death. You know, yeah. it's so heartbreaking. It really is. Uh yeah, absolutely. And you brought up um, his relationship to Jenny. You can tell he is a guy who's alone. I love in the film when he talks about when he found out she was dead, uh, he had like a feeling. And it, it seems like when you are very close to a loved one, you sometimes will think about each other at the same time, or you will have a weird connection or an idea. Is something going on? I've had that a few times in my own life and it's been really spooky. Like once I had a dream that my uncle got hurt and then the next day he, I heard he fell off a ladder and that was mm. really bizarre. And then when we're talking about Soderbergh, uh, it goes in with Traffic, which is a film that I saw in Minnesota, but then when it came to DVD, it was right after I moved to Arizona and I was away from my brother who's back there. And weirdly enough, he called me um, and said, you know, what are you doing? I'm watching traffic. I'm watching traffic. Like, where are you? And I told him and he was maybe 30 seconds from where I was in a different <laughs> yeah, in, in a different state. We hadn't arranged this. And so sometimes, yes, you do have a connection. And uh, so that's my weird 
uh, Wilson-y kind of thing that links in with Soderbergh. But I love that about Wilson. I also think it's important. Um, and it also shows that Jenny was another one of these outsiders. Like this is a beautiful young woman who was with this older, successful guy who's basically another father figure, essentially, when you're looking at his age. Um, you know, I mean, it's Peter Fonda. He's gorgeous and, every, and very charming. A lot of the stories he tells are basically Peter Fonda-isms just riffing. But the two people who were closest to Jenny, if you think about it, this woman was probably in her early 20s, were Luis Guzman, who she met in an acting class, and uh, her teacher, who was Leslie Ann Warren. So people that were at least 20 years older than her. And those were like her two best friends. And I think that really says a lot about her heart. And uh, kind of, it goes back to Karen Sisko as being someone who does have a good soul and is trying to connect with anyone regardless of who they are or their background, just trying not to be judgmental. And so we kind of get a good vibe on Jenny as not being someone who had like a gaggle of flighty 20-something girls that she used to go clubbing with. No, she hung around Louise Guzman and Leslie Ann Warren. And I think that's telling. And it's really cool that her father picks up with them too. And Guzman becomes his new China, China plate mate. I love mate, all the yep. <laughs> yeah. perfect. And um, yeah, and it's also heartbreaking too, the the connection that he had with his daughter and how it pays off in a weird way with Terry Valentine and what led to her death that we find out about, which was the hook for the movie for Soderbergh. He knew he wanted to model it on point blank and get Carter or a couple of those. It's, films. it's very, you yeah. know, get my $70,000 back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He knew he wanted to do that, but he was like, those movies are kind of cold and we needed an emotional thing. And so with him and Lem Dobbs, when they finally figured out a way to have what happened to Jenny tie in with him. So it's a double whammy and it connects the two men. That's when the whole movie made sense to him. And uh, I love that. It goes right back to what Rob said. That was his person. Yes. Yeah. I'm going to call him dad. Yes. His net. Terrence Stamp is so, I, I love everything, I, as I always do, I love everything that you say. And um, Terrence Stamp's performance in this is... Um, so good. He is not mired in grief. No. And he allows himself joy when remembering mm-hmm. Jenny, even though the memories of Jenny were her <laughs> disappointment in him. Yeah. And... He, this movie is very much um, about memory, and ex- it, you, the way you experience it is as a memory, you know, throughout it all, um, to the point where you think he's on his way somewhere on an airplane at the beginning, and that he's just gotten there with that first scene where you're immediately in his. POV at at the at the very horrible LAX underground, mm-hmm. you know, pickup terminal, and what you realize is that he's on that airplane, finished his mission. So it's all a whirlwind of tense. And um, I say that I, I, I think I'm getting a little convoluted, but he allows his memory 
of his daughter's disappointment to be the thing that he can experience over and over, even though the moment with Leslie Ann Warren, when she kind of introduces him to the idea of her as an adult woman and how profoundly that she didn't judge him or hate him. She was just disappointed. And this is another, another uh, connected theme of like what you can't, what has slipped through your fingers, you know, in life. Yeah. She could have had a dad and he could have had a daughter and instead all they have are these memories and it's, it's awful. It's just awful. You know, and we're also, we're seeing flashback moments with Jenny who is played by, I believe, Melissa George, uh, Mm -hmm. which is great. But the other thing is I remember the first time I watched it, it did not sink in what they were doing with Adhara. Uh, who is kind of the new trophy young girlfriend of Peter Fonda, but she's a real sweetheart. She's beautiful. She actually looks a little bit like Jenny. Uh, Almost identical. Yes, which shows that Fonda has a type. But in her behavior and her interactions with Fonda in particular, like late into the film, she's the one that wants to call the cops when stuff goes down. You really start to get a sense of, you know, sometimes when people split up or break up, they, they date like the same person or the, the person who was dumped. Like uh, my dad seemed to kind of have the same um, taste in women as my mom, uh, essentially. And so you see Jenny, I guess, through Adhara, the, the character. And I didn't fully appreciate that in a first viewing. So if you haven't really let that sink in, next time you watch, think about it. I think it's making Jenny more well-rounded in our own mind by having this new version of Jenny, sort of a Twin Peaksian thing, but but not creepy. And also just showing things are circular. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I love the shot when Wilson steals the picture of Jenny that is still on Yes. Um, Terry Valentine's wall. It's a haunting revelation for Terry when that's missing mm-hmm. after he throws his bodyguard over and like kills him in the most casual. Yes, like, in the middle of a fucking party. Yeah, <laughs> it's the it's the greatest. Um, yes, and uh, but we see it's very noir, very old Hollywood. Mm-hmm. We see that picture on the desk with the with the ashtray, and she's very glamorous. It's obviously a, like a headshot type portrait of Jenny. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, to me, it's a, it's an interesting viewpoint that you say, because I always took it to be kind of a, a further um, con- condemnation of Terry Valentine that he just tries to replace what he murdered. Yeah. Um, and uh, the new Jenny is, she doesn't take Terry Valentine too seriously. No. <laughs> uh, remember the, the look she gives, she laughs at him when he gives his big, you know, Terry Valentine zeitgeist line where he's talking about the 60s. Yes. You ever dream about a place she's you in never the recall being to? Yes. Yeah. Well, she's always in water. And I find she that to is. be yes it's very glamorous and like beautiful and glistening on one end but on another side 
she's always separated from Terry Valentine in a way that is. Yeah, um, Jenny liked the beach though too. And also women are water, essentially, if you're talking in, in new agey kind of terms. terms. Um, she's clean. So mm-hmm. yeah, there is, I mean, a sensuality with the water, but she's always either drinking water, surrounded by water. Yeah. In the pool, in the bath. Yep. The only time she's not is when she is, you know. In the car, yeah. In the car, right, or absolutely in the car and in the house. Yep. Uh, when she's under a, you know, major threat. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just that he, Terry Valentine is constantly playing with his teeth, like as a predator yeah. or vampire preens his killing instrument while he's telling this like zeitgeist, Hip. ridiculous throwback, you know. You knew the language. You knew you, were, you knew your way around. That was the '60s. No, it wasn't that either. It was just '66 and early '67. That's all it was. And then he leaves. It's so hilariously <laughs> baby boomer and stupid. And and then she she just laughs at him. You know. So yeah, it's very she, I'm a cool guy. It's playing with his persona so much. Like this is Peter Fonda of Easy Rider and everything. And when we first meet him, you hear the song, you know, King Midas with the curse. And there's a montage that's set to the song. You see her like on her way out to the pool. And then, you know, you even get to make use of the fact that Peter Fonda was advertising for American Express. And so there's like a shot of his billboard with the Amex with his picture, who's supposed to be as Terry Valentine, but Soderbergh's using it as using a person as iconography. Like uh, when he was in the car in the scene, I think there weren't any lines scripted or something. He's like, what do you want me to do? Oh, just tell her some stories. So you've got Peter kind of just ad-libbing. One of my favorite ad-libs is when his uh, right-hand man, who's really scary in the film, you know, like, how are you always getting out of danger or skirting out? And he's just, again, it's an ad-lib, like, because I learned to skate when I was a boy and it's Fonda kind of backing, gliding out of the room and it's just perfect. Yeah. Yeah. He's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I remember, I think I remember that um, American Express. I think that was on the Beverly Center, maybe. Oh, really? I think so. I could be wrong. Um, Yeah, he's... He's great. I mean, and like you kind of feel for him until you see mm-hmm. you, the, one of the only times you see Jenny living is when she's, you know, being accidentally murdered when yeah. she's going to turn him in as she would have turned in her father or did turn in her father. Mm-hmm. And it's really terrible. Or no, um, threatened to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Like Leslie Ann Warren says, you know, she never would have done that. And he said, oh, I know. But. Yeah, everyone right. isn't gonna know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Nikki Cat, you want to go? He's your favorite man. Oh, dude. I mean, look, Nikki Cat is terribly offensive. Very <laughs> every funny scene while... he's in, he offends at least one or two different groups. Every yes. new one, yeah, yes. And look, he says this is the lifestyle I embrace, which is like. <laughs> totally transgressive and awful he when we meet stacy his character that's when the movie starts getting really more um dangerous yeah for wilson and everyone Mm -hmm. when i was 18 go ahead 
Oh, no, I was going to say we had that big showdown earlier when uh, he goes to the warehouse to find out and you see this guy say something horrible and offensive about his daughter. The whispering. Yeah, yeah, whispering like we don't need to hear it because you already know the guy is a creep. But, you know, you know, he's going to be toast or we're going to have him have his comeuppance. And what's interesting is then it kind of chills and he goes to the party and throws the guy over, you know, the, the cliff in the middle of the party. And it's very casual. Then we meet Mickey Cat and, yep, things take a big turn. And that's the one moment that I'm very like that Soderbergh moment for me, besides the warehouse thing is when they approach Leslie and Warren and Terrence stamp in the garage about to commit the hit, Ooh. just him coming out of the shadows, like step aside, ma'am. It's all mechanical. Like this is how they were going to kill yeah. this person. Yeah. And it's very scary. Obviously he gets taken down by the DEA or whoever swoop in there. Yeah. Um, but he's very, very funny. Um, mm-hmm. He's I love Nicky Cat. I wish he was in everything all the time. He plays an odious asshole so well. I mean, yeah. Boiler Room. Remember the Snow Angels? Did you ever see that movie? Yeah, I did once. I barely remember it, though. It's problematic. But, um, gosh, I'm he's a great honest. character actor. Yeah, he's God. He's great, and um, I just love him to death. Uh, you know, yeah. when I was a little idiot teenager, I thought it was really funny, and for all the wrong reasons, of course, because yeah, he was just being a mean guy. You know, a bully. He's a. This mm-hmm. is what happens when you know a bully goes out in the world, really. And he dies in the most anticlimactic way. I love it. Yeah. Like he's like the first to go essentially at the end. And it it's just great because you're waiting for this mono a mono thing like Snoop and Jack at the end of Out of Sight. And you really don't have that essentially because we've been spending so much time with the Nikki Cat character and it's just, oh, he's dead. And yeah. uh, I thought Avery that was great. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And it kind yeah. of, you can see uh, Soderbergh talked about he was playing with this um in this with some ideas he had left over or things he wanted to do and out of sight that he couldn't or he wanted to take it to a different level like more of an antonioni thing and uh but yeah i love that this went against genre in some very creative ways that you aren't expecting oh man i mean it's another great opening with the who playing and yeah then, like i like i said before you know it's all this, it's like a new, this great noir detective story, but all a dream. You know, it's just all this, you never know where you are, or what's going on, but somehow you do. And and the thing that I, I noticed was that it feels like, did Soderbergh have them play scenes in different locations? Because I don't know. It's like the dialogue picks up from one in some of these scenes like with um guzman and with leslie and warren that like they're in her apartment but they're also talking like over by the beach or wherever they're going for a walk but it's they're like responding to each other from different um places and times but it's the same conversation and the same with guzman with wilson it made me feel like you know we're all kind of spiraling in the same circle um 
trying to like grab something that will ground us. And mm-hmm. uh, the, another thing I really liked about um, when Guzman is like, you know, do you know what he's saying? And, and Leslie and Warren's character is like, no, but I know what he means. We know she's That's very so lonely good. too. Yeah. 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 She's very lonely. And um, yeah, it's, you've got more than one outsider, just like Karen was an outsider in her job and Jack was an outsider. These are outsider, And we're going to meet more with um, Aaron Brockovich and uh, with Benicio as an ultimate outsider in traffic. Yes. Yeah. 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 Great movie. I love the limey. Is there anything Gosh. else you want to be sure to add before we move on? No, just that the whole thing is what we realize is catch up that present tense is him in the plane and this whole mm-hmm. thing, which has been flashbacks and tense changing yeah. conversations is all a flashback to him in his mind yeah. with a small smile next to the woman. You know, he's talking about being a salesman too. It's just, and they also like, they take a quick jab at George Clooney on access Hollywood on the TV. Which yes. Which is very funny. A good in yeah. joke. Yeah. yeah. And, one thing I would recommend is if anyone listening doesn't have the DVD or, you know, wants to hear what I think is the funniest, craziest commentary track ever, it is Lem Dobbs just giving Steven Soderbergh like the hardest time in the world. It opens with him chewing and cursing him out. It is the craziest <laughs> commentary track you will ever hear. It's so worth it. And you know, it's like reason number one when people are like, why do people like DVDs? What is the perk? Listening to people be that crazy and uncomfortable. Um, you know, it was great. Yeah. Yep. Hey, Jen, uh, before we move on, um, do you know anything about, I, I, I think I read something or heard something about how this film ultimately was not working at all. And then I think the editor on this was Sarah Flack mm-hmm. and that she kind of, had a lot to do with this t- kind of time dash um, structure about it all. And that's when everything clicked into place for Soderbergh. You know, I didn't do enough research, I guess, on that aspect. And I did read this book, but it didn't really talk about that very much. No. Well, shout out to Sarah Flack because yes. um, she's amazing. This is, It's a beautiful collage yeah. of memory. Yes, absolutely. Described by Steven Soderbergh as a Rocky movie, but a good Rocky movie, and one defined and driven by its protagonist, as opposed to dependent upon a key courtroom scene, our next movie is the one that earned Julia Roberts a well-deserved Academy Award for Best Actress, a dramatization of the real-life story of the determined, compassionate, hardworking single mother, Erin Brockovich, who, while working as a clerk in lawyer Albert Finney's office, stumbles on massive potential wrongdoing by Pacific Gas and Electric. Robert's titular lead makes it her life mission to make this energy company pay for contaminating and covering up the groundwater in a California community, which leads to massive catastrophic health problems for the local residents of Hinkley. It's a crowd-pleasing character piece where goodness wins the day and nice guys finish first. It finds Soderbergh once again gravitating to stories of outsiders trying to deduce fact from fiction and ensure truth and not lies win out. 
I love this movie and I know you and your wife especially do as well. So let's get into the water here with Aaron Brockovich. Take it away, Rob. Um, I cry through this movie every single time. I cry, I'm crying looking at my nose for this damn thing. Um, I know, right? You're such a great, your, your initial intro um, at the beginning of this podcast was you, you said she's up against it, right? And, yeah. and that's how we meet her. Yeah. Um, she swings and misses at an interview. She's mm-hmm. un, unqualified. And then she's up against the wall, uh, literally smoking a cigarette. It's not bad enough. She gets a parking ticket, breaks a nail, gets hit by a car, loses a oh babysitter. Uh, I mean, it's like the worst uh, day. It's an Alexander in the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, but times 20. Yes. Yeah. And that's how we meet her. And, and people you know, a couple judge things, her right from the beginning. Yeah, they do. I mean, she's a little bit like Wilson in there. You know, they're always talking about like how they can't understand Wilson and how he's not from around here. And that is the vibe she brings to every space that she's in, mm-hmm. even to another outsider, George. Yeah. And that that romance is beautiful, played by Aaron Eckhart. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I guess I just say, I, I want to hear what, what you have to say about it. I'm, um, but there's a couple things that really strike out, uh, strike out. I'm going to say that 50 times, I guess. Um, you only get three and then you're out of the game. <laughs> the, uh, that there aren't any flashbacks in this film that even when people are telling their stories, um, oh, that's we a good sit, point. Yeah. We just sit with Aaron um, listen. and listen to them and see how their stories impact them and how new information changes their understanding. A great example of this is that famous moment when uh, Marge Helgenberger, you know, says, but PG&E paid for the doctor. And, you know, uh, Aaron says that to, to Marge's character, mm-hmm. but PG&E paid for the doctor. And then you just see her look and you watch her realize that she has been manipulated. And then she looks out to her girl swimming in the pool. She yes. doesn't get them from the pool. It's so horrifying. It is the most, oh my gosh, just chilling moment. And he doesn't overplay it. It's a human moment of recognition. Yes. Of, you had, When you were watching this, you texted me, or maybe it was right after because you were too emotional through it. And you were saying, you know, decency is so rare or kindness and that is the superpower these are decent kind people they don't want to think that anyone would potentially harm their family or lie to them or manipulate them or cause cancer and not do what's right these are people who just want to live basic lives kind of want to fill those uh, maslow's hierarchy of needs just like uh, aaron does right from the beginning of the movie and yeah, you just see that again and again with these people who have been judged by society or, you know, they are the Davids to the Goliath. And it's a real moving 
story that doesn't do it in a way that it isn't a TV movie of the week movie. We don't also have, it isn't a civil action. It isn't a film that is, that's a great film, but it's a courtroom movie. That is not what this is at all. It's the human drama that inspires and fascinates him. It was a film that Jersey films actually tried to get Steven to do after out of sight right away. And it just didn't appeal to him. He's like, that doesn't sound interesting to me. And it wasn't until later, like he needed to do the limey, get some of those ideas out of his system that he's like, okay, I put the nonlinear thing out of, you know, out of my mind. And now it would be nice to tell a story. Also, he was drawn to the fact that it was about a woman because most of his films and most movies in general seem to revolve around men. And uh, especially Rocky type stories usually do revolve around a male character. And here we have a woman. And he thought that would be really good for him as a man and as a filmmaker to devote himself to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and boy, does he kill it. Um, yes. I, I think the reason I tear up, I mean, look, movies are powerful and they're engineered to make you emote. But I think that, you know, the secret behind, again, I can watch this movie a hundred times and cry at the same hundred, probably 110 places is um, the authenticity of the people in, in the story and how he lets them live, you know, how we live with them. And um, Aaron being one of them, you know, mm -hmm. but not just the victims of this terrible corruption. And look, corruption is something he touches on and out of sight with uh, Albert Brooks, and just the prison system in general. He hits it again in the limey, like Terry Valentine is very corrupt and money laundering. And he'll really go hard in traffic. But this is a type of corruption that he is very um, focused on. And we get to experience it through Aaron you know, yeah. realizing this, her first brush with the legal system is such a, she tells the truth and loses her case. And because she is uncouth or uh, unapologetic or authentic, or just talks like a real person yes. instead of like coded speak to legal or office or professional or whatever. And um, so we learn with her throughout this story. Um, and I love what you said. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's a story of decency. And and her her power is that she is decent to people and can teach Ed how to be more decent, right? Mm -hmm. But we see that he ha he is an intrinsically a decent pers person. Um, you know, he gives her a job. He gives her the hundred bucks without making her feel terrible about it, you know? And, um, I love him in this, the two oh, of them together. Albert Finney is so great. And it's really Dude. cool to see because I always loved Albert Finney, but recently I've become a big fan of the kitchen sink drama era of filmmaking mm -hmm. through my friend, Donald Logue, who I'm going to be doing an episode of the podcast on uh, the kitchen sink dramas with Donal. And that's like one of his favorite schools of filmmaking ever. And you see Albert Finney in these movies, you know, young and virile and handsome and playing these roles like in uh, Saturday night and Sunday morning. And 
and also in The Entertainer. And it's really cool because Steven Soderbergh is a huge fan of 60s British filmmaking and 70s British filmmaking. He's just a fan of filmmaking in general, but he actually wrote a book with Richard Lester, who made some movies in England and like uh, very famous ones, late 60s, some of the Beatles movies and some crazy films, did a lot of experimental stuff. But you can see his reverence for British talent. And so uh, bringing Albert Finney in here and then bringing him back for traffic uh, as well is so cool to see. And Finney is amazing in Aaron Brockovich. It really, I mean, as wonderful and perfect as as Julia Roberts is, and boy, does she deserve that Oscar. uh, She wouldn't have had that performance and we wouldn't have loved Aaron nearly as much as we did without Albert Finney and also without Aaron Eckhart, who's just magical yeah. as George. Yes. It's the best he's ever been to me. I mean, yeah, it's I so nice seeing him. him not play an asshole, too. Oh, God, he is like him in the in his reading glasses under the sink and his long hair, yes. like slightly aged reaching for something that maybe he's never had in Aaron. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, uh, to your point about Albert Finney, he's so wonderful to watch balance her and like the meal that he continually eats in this movie is like his uh, her ability to flummox him, you know, silently and also like dazzle him and also what grows to be pride in her, you know, at the end. Um, we watch him digest this very special person um, that is very uh, surprising um, and it makes us fall in love with him. And, and I think I love him. I, when, when my life kind of got out of control, I had a lawyer named David Ogden mm-hmm. who looks and sounds like Ed Masry in this. No and he's way. the lawyer that the Lincoln lawyer is based on the original Oh, wow. Michael Connolly. And he was just this like great, decent dude who saved my life and Uh changed my life around. And like, I think he's gone now. He passed. But I'm sorry. I think of him every time I see Ed Masry. (laughs) Like sometimes the law can be, sometimes people can give a shit and, and, she says to him, you know, I may not know shit about shit, but I know the difference between right and wrong and yes. invest in that. And then she validates him and says, um, you're doing the right thing, Mr. Masry. She, mm-hmm. Instead of Ed, she calls him Mr. Masry. But she also teaches him, you know, have a fucking cup of coffee, Ed. <laughs> coffee yeah. would be great. Thank you. Be a human being, dude. You know, yes, be a human when being. you're at people's houses. Yes. And I love, um, you know, she dresses extremely provocatively through the movie. That's that's her thing. She's disarming and she likes being sexy. And she said, while she looks like that, she's going to take advantage and it is kind of threatening some of the women around the office and making people uncomfortable a little bit. And he tries to broach the subject with her and he, she cuts him down right away. Like, you know, that is not his place to do so. And I, I thought that was very funny. Yeah. You brought up the law. I think that's a really good point. There's a through line besides outsiders that kind of goes throughout Soderbergh's filmography. And that's 
an interest in the way that institutions in this country can fail you. The medical community, the, the legal community, uh, NBA in um, High Flying Bird, um, you know, even as far back as Sex, Lies, and Videotape, there were uh, shots taken at lawyers. Liar is another word for lawyer. Um, lines about therapy not being helpful, which is a little ironic because Soderbergh's mom was a therapist and might be a little bit, a uh, little Freudian little thing going on with that. But, you know, Side Effects is a really good movie that I think yeah. gets undervalued a lot. That deals with the medical issue mm -hmm. uh, community as far as side effects of medication and what we're doing right. to people. And, you know, there are a lot of these films that are showing the way that sometimes what's supposed to protect you can harm you. But then there are these good people who want to do their best to make the system work or get the system on track to work in the way that it should. And Aaron Brockovich is very much that kind of movie. You know, listening to you, yes, absolutely. And listening to you uh, talk about that, it, it, it makes me think that like, in these movies and maybe his work in general, there is that the world is a, is kind of an awful place yep. and that people want to make a single mark in their life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for Jack Foley, it starts, starts out with how many banks he's robbed, but it becomes to have love. And for Wilson, it's to right the wrong of losing his love. And, you know, for Javier Rodriguez Rodriguez, it is to create a clean place of joy for the youth in a corrupt country. Yes. You know, oh. and for Aaron Brockovich, I mean, she says it, she says it out loud. She's, she says um, to, to George, you know, uh, where is it? Don't ask me to give this up. You know, uh, I've never, mm -hmm. people look at me with respect and they listen to me and I, I ain't never had that before. Don't yeah. ask me to give that up. So there's the individual thing she wants, but what it turns into when she sees that, that child suffering with cancer between nestled between her two <laughs> oh. parents. Yeah. Um, she's in the car alone and everything changes for her. And it, it yeah. becomes not about the respect she gets, but about, again, righting a wrong Yeah, for people who are, their children and their health are being stolen from them by a company for profits and they're being lied to. I mean, it, you can't get more evil than that. And I love that you never meet anyone from PG&E. You just meet mm -hmm. a couple lawyers who have a handful of lines and that's it. It's just, they're yeah. everywhere. Yeah, Like it's all yellow. Everything is yellow. The uniforms of PG&E guys who come chasing her, they're in yellow uniforms. Like it's the landscape of corporate corruption that we all live in. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, she's wonderful. And um, I do want to talk a little bit about George's game with her because it's one of my favorite scenes. George's when game. Like when he's throwing game at her, when he oh meets her. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I love that. Where she's firing <laughs> off all those numbers at him. Oh my yes. God. And he's, she's being so mean. And he says, I like the way you say that, George. Yes. <laughs> and then you're dead wrong about that zero thing, baby. 
And it's the second, it's the second, my second favorite Pratt fall with him falling flat on his knees and then on his face in front of his friends when he, when he's walking away from the house. Yeah. Like, it's so good. The only other one that's better is when white boy Bob does the Pratt fall that ends his life on the stairs and out of sight. You know, what's so good about that too, is we've seen back to out of sight, white boy Bob fall, like at least two other times or trip. And so it's like, Yep, the third time, you know, in comedy threes, oh. and, uh, it kills him. And it's so good. Yeah, it's perfect. Yes. But the scene with George is good. They have really great chemistry. And uh, yeah. as he meets her, you know, he has the sexy biker thing going on. And she's, um, you know, yelling at them because they're being noisy and is not easily charmed or isn't a motorcycle mama. So she's not really falling for it. And I just think it's such a good introduction to not only their relationship and how they're going to interact with each other, but also through the flirtation, it tells you so much about them as people. And it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. so many incredible lines. She is such, she doesn't have room for more pain. No. And he drills into her like you always is hard on people trying to help you Mm -hmm. now i can just look after the kids and i don't have to worry about you coming on to me all the time like the charm the gentleness of this this biker yeah is so gentle with her again it's a person that you wouldn't expect to be either just like you see this knockout in her uh, push-up bras and all of her very very tight clothing and you don't expect her to be as tender and loving um, as she is with everyone or maybe as intelligent, you know, it plays into our stereotypes. And then you see George and you think, I'm not leaving my kids with that guy. And he is a teddy bear who loves those kids enough that after they break up, he'll return just to help out the kids. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And, I mean, he tells her, you're someone to me you're a very special lady. And she says, you know, are you going to be something I have to survive? It's That's right such there. A good line. That, and then it comes back around. I think he, she's like, you know, I'm different. What do I have to prove to you? And, and she says, stay. And he doesn't, he leaves because yep. she's too busy. But um, but when he does come back to watch the kids, they're staying at the Desert Lake Hotel. So there is there is water in the desert. Like there is hope there. Ooh, we're looking we for get, symbolism. I like yeah, that. I'm a symbol. Yeah, I'm a Rob's the romantic. He's looking for that for sure. Uh, <sighs> yeah, it's, it's good. And what a script too. You citing those lines really drives it home. The screenplay was by Susanna Grant. She wrote uh, Ever After, which is a good one, with Drew Barrymore. In Her Shoes is an excellent movie that Curtis Hansen directed. And she also did a few others that, you know, we're going to ignore. But she is a great writer. She was also a writer on A Party of Five. So you can see her ability to blend personal drama with needing to drive some issues home, but do it in a very relatable fun and Soderbergh kind of way yeah boy she has my number I mean she I she walks me around the room with her script when I watch this movie on a leash I'm a dog (laughs) crying 
And um, it's so great. Like you're, you're talking about people surprising you with who they are if you dig a little deeper, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the stereotype of how she dresses and talks, uh, not just how much warmth and tenderness there is there, but how effective and capable she can be when offered the chance. And it's such a great through line from the vulnerability of her speech when she tells George, I was Miss Wichita for Christ's sake and talks about her reign and that she just, she wanted to be somebody. She wanted to help people. And that throws forward to the fact that she is somebody and she does not just her kids, which is totally important, but also kind of a maternal expectation or obligation that it not is that is not exactly new to this film, but you know you see that impossible effectiveness when put to task by a more regimented, compartmentalized legal woman. The aide in uh, I forget the the the, the big time lawyer that they they part with. Yes, and she's looking for the numbers and whose number do you need? And she, she knows, knows them all. all the number, all of them. Do, mm-hmm. do you want their diseases? You know? Yes. Yeah. And what I also like is it would have been very easy to make Aaron just a complete, you know, hero, like somebody who's so flawless and so perfect that we don't understand, you know, or there's no drama there, but we're willing to be exposed to her flaws and the fact that sometimes she does get in her own way and she is her own worst enemy in some of these relationships and how she shuts people down almost as a defense Mm. mechanism as is this going to be another thing I have to survive when she thinks um, some of the people in the office are judging her she attacks them first and very viciously in a few scenes and you know it just shows that she is herself trying to address her own worth and realize that she deserves respect, but also then pay other people respect too. Speaking of people that surprise you, every time I watch this movie, the character that really creeps you out a lot is Tracy Walters, Charles Embry, who at first you think is like just this no good stalkery guy. And he probably, you know, I mean, she's a gorgeous woman. He is definitely into her and loves having a beautiful woman um, staring at him and interested in what he has to say. And his approach to her is so creepy. You just think like, you know, we're going to find Aaron behind a dumpster or in the middle of the woods (laughs) dead because of this guy. And so I always think that's another great um, thing about this film is it shows that, you know, she has to learn that other people judge her and she shouldn't judge other people, but you do have to have your antenna up, especially without uh, about men. And yeah, Charles Embry, the character played by Tracy Walter freaks me out every time I watch this movie. It's and, and the payoff of that is so wonderful too, because when she does engage him yeah, and he says, you know, I forget if it's his brother or his cousin yes. just died. And that it when he was working you. there, he'd wear yeah. a, a mask. mask that was soaked red with blood from the nosebleeds. Like mm-hmm. the image, we don't cut to it. We stay on him, you know, yeah. and um, he is a creep. And and probably, honestly, 
a fucking killer. I mean, he's probably killed a <laughs> he lot is of so scary. Yes. In those vats that he was cleaning, the hydraulic vats for PG and E. There's yeah. a lot of allegedly, cats. allegedly yeah. there's some stuff going on with him. But, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's that dude has killed a lot. Um <laughs> but um but yeah, what a film though. What a film. And you know, this this movie doesn't teach it teaches enough law to Aaron and to us watching to mm-hmm. understand the tremendous obstacles that the it, the characters face to help the victims it traffic becomes an education and, and really a really does. important viable one but this uh, before we go there just what you were saying about men in general like she has been supremely let down by men yeah and so uh with masri the the uh, with masri and her son who gives her a really hard time for not being yes. around there finally understands what she's doing and asks if <laughs> again <laughs> rob's gonna cry again. Fucking cut this shit uh ask her <laughs> she wants some fucking eggs god damn it yes so, cut that no um, <laughs> oh god and you get the head nod from him. And then the final, like, obviously the heartbreaker is when she brings George at the end to, to show, I want to show what you helped do. There yes. was meaning for your isolation and sacrifice. Um, but the fun of the end is using her kind of uh, character defect against her, which is her inability to control her instinct to react. And Ed Masry uses it against her with her bonus check, you know? And it's like the big, it's a little schmaltzy at the end, but like the hot, their bonus isn't what we agreed on. And she rips him one and then realizes he gave her $2 million. And yeah. we all get to like laugh. That's so Aaron Brockovich, you know what I mean? But, yeah, it's but a little sick nice but it works. Yeah. yeah, it's a nice resolution. She ain't perfect. And then the final shot is her at the front door of a new neighbor, of a new citizen's house she's no longer up against the wall smoking you know or selling herself to a doctor she's selling decency door to door to human beings um with a different you know her her physicality is upright and confident before it was broken and afraid and from first shot to last shot it's it's just a tremendous wonderful effective story such a good character arc and things that you would see as an actor. So that's, yeah, very good analysis there, Rob. But, and lastly, we have a film that had been percolating for years in Hollywood ever since the release of the groundbreaking 1989 British miniseries of the same name, only spelled with a K. In Steven Soderbergh's other 2000 film, Traffic, here spelled with a C, We follow three highly intricate, emotional, yet largely objective stories that are almost docudrama-like in their intimacy and interconnectedness in order to paint an accurate portrait of drugs and the drug epidemic from all angles. These include an addict who just so happens to be the daughter of the new drug czar in Ohio, an honest cop in Mexico City who sees the corruption of the police and brutality of the cartels firsthand, and a pregnant wife in San Diego who finds out that her husband isn't the successful businessman she thought he was, but a drug smuggler when he is sent to jail, which necessitates her to step up and take over 
in order to keep the lifestyle to which he's grown accustomed and also bring him home. Color-coded by Soderbergh using filters in order to help us figure out immediately where we are as the movie flips back and forth between storylines. This epic, which secured Soderbergh an Oscar for Best Director and the film for Best Picture, among other awards, features a murderer's row of talent, including Benicio Del Toro and his Oscar-winning performance, Don Cheadle, Michael Douglas, Erica Christensen, Luis Guzman, Dennis Quaid, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Topher Grace, and more. There's lots to discuss with this one, I think, but I would love you to start us off as well. I know for personal reasons, it is definitely one of your favorites. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I mean, it is a searing indictment of the war on drugs. Yeah. And that's my favorite there's so many things to love about this movie. One, like you said, it's a docudrama. Um, it's shot at handheld. Um, lots yeah. of fast hands on action. Yeah. yeah. Um, and multiple times we we hear of the ineffectiveness of the war on drugs. We hear yeah. the outgoing drugs are say, you know, you hope you made a dent. But I don't know what I've done here. You hear Michael Douglas's wife uh, or, or Robert Wakefield's wife, Mrs. Wakefield. I forget her name. And that is terrible. Amy um, Irving. Yes. But the, the character. Oh, yeah. Um, Mrs. Wakefield. Mrs. Wakefield. Okay. Um, as you know, if you start in on the war metaphors, I'm going to drive this car into a phone booth, like Mm -hmm. this, that war metaphors aren't accurate. And that, you know, we have Miguel Ferrar's whole discussion of the war on drugs and the fact that Monty and Ray, uh, Cheadle and Guzman work for a drug dealer too. The only reason you're, you got to me is because another cartel boss tipped me off. Yeah. the socioeconomic tilt of it is that through that difficult to ingest speech Topher Grace, great Topher Grace gives to Michael Douglas in the car about uh, white people coming to buy drugs in mm-hmm. predominantly black neighborhoods, but also the all the pharmaceuticals and all the uh, the people yeah. pitching Robert Wakefield at the beginning, the politics that it's an uneven, it's painted a picture of essentially rich white people killing, arresting, and chewing up people who are not rich and white and calling it the drug war. And it's incredibly effective. To me, it feels very true. Even to this day, it was made over 20 years ago. and um, I think part part of the reason it's so effective is we get to sit and live with the characters in multiple ways and at multiple times. And I got to tell you, everyone's amazing in this, but I don't know if Erica Christensen gets enough. Oh, she is oh, just staggeringly great. Yep. She is off her ass good. Yeah. I mean. As I, I, you know, you know that I am a um, recovering old coco myself. You know, <laughs> I am just like 
I have my own issues. Luckily, I got treatment as as she does. And as, yeah. But I watch her and it feels true to me. The first time she free bases, a tear comes down her eye. Yeah. And I know what that means. It's just suddenly the pieces click in a way that they've never clicked before. And it doesn't matter where you come from or what trauma. I mean, these things can feed into a life of addiction, but we see Viola Davis come back, right? As the social worker in sick care line, why are you here? Your yes. story doesn't present as, and it doesn't matter. It's drugs take you and she goes on the ride and you see the story that of addiction on this rich white girl and yeah. how scary it is. It's so scary too, because, you know, through the whole movie, like Topher Grace is the one introducing her to freebasing and some of these things, but, you know, in order to sexually manipulate her. Yes, exactly. And Mm -hmm. it shows you how just horrible it is that some people can just do drugs and then that's their like phase, kind of like the Amy Irving (laughs) character or something or whatever, like like sexual experimentation in college is basically almost how they describe it, even though you realize she is kind of a pill popper and there are some stuff going on with the parents. Um, But like Topher Grace is probably going to go off to college, probably do more coke and stuff there, but then maybe be a Wall Streeter. Like he seems like he's going to be fine with it, but then how it takes this straight A student uh, second in the class and what it does, like it, Drug is drugs are a, a terrible equalizer of whoever they hurt. Essentially, it is gonna you aren't gonna win uh, if you're an addict if you um, if you fall for that and um, and through no fault of her own, of course. Um, these are kids who are extremely privileged. There's a scene at a party where they're just so bored and they just keep doing drugs like they have nothing really to say or anything. And then when you hear her after she's been arrested and brought in and Viola Davis is kind of asking her, like, why are you here? Um, And she's trying to sell herself as a perfectionist and like, well, I do this, this and this. And do you work? No, but I volunteer for two hours a week reading to to blind people i mean she is going to school and doing all these other activities but as she rattles them off you're just it is so devastating to to see this girl this beautiful with her whole future ahead of her and then where uh, michael douglas finds her later which is just a harrowing harrowing sequence yeah uh, another uh what is coded as you know, the, the, and the most heart, I mean, it is the most heartbreaking scene, but another kind of well-to-do predatory yep. white dude, you know, taking advantage of for drugs. Um, yeah. Right. And um, she's laying on in the bed and she's so gone. And oh God. Yeah. She just says, hi, daddy. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It, it just, Yep, because the first thing she sees when she wakes up is her dad. She's a little girl for two minutes again, and um, not this surly teenager who's angry at the world and um, getting down the into the quicksand of drugs. And yeah, it it really I can't imagine. Um, 
Harrison Ford, I know, was the first person who was attached. He thought about it for a while. Soderbergh talked about he was going to do the the shooting of this himself, along with Michael Mann's uh, camera operator. It was just him and Gary J, who he said, Michael Mann doesn't make a movie without him. So uh, Soderbergh was the main person shooting. And then uh, the other uh, cameraman was shooting as well. So it was going to go a lot faster because it started as like a 165 page script. You know, they're going through several different cities, actors all over. It was going to be, I think, uh, a huge shoot of how long it was going to take. And he was selling it to Harrison Ford, like run and gun. You're going to not have to sit on a set and wait for that many lighting setups or whatever. We're using a lot of available light and we'll just keep going. And, um, you know, Harrison Ford, at the end of the day, he liked that idea, but he just felt it was not what he needed. And Soderbergh was fine with it. Of course, he said, the last thing you want is an actor on your movie who just doesn't want to be there. And it was really fortuitous that it was Michael Douglas, because he said uh, in a different part of the interview in one of these books, um, which was Steven Soderbergh interviews that I read, um, he was talking about how because Douglas is a movie star, like it's not a movie star performance. It's an actor's performance. He, mm-hmm. be, but because he is a movie star, he no longer needs to show off. He just plays the part. He's super professional. And, you know, we see a side of Douglas that we had not seen before in the same year that also brought us uh, wonder boys, which is one of his oh, best yeah. performances. Yeah. One of your faves. Yeah. One of my yeah. faves. Yeah. Trip, professor trip. Yes. Uh, no, I, I, I love, uh, yeah, I love, I loved him in it. Um, I think it, it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, Michael Douglas performance. I yeah. believe him. I believe, you know, it's, it's around the time that Oxycontin is really starting to do a lot of damage in this country, but, yeah. but not exactly being talked about. And, you know, it's unfortunate that this movie has to paint a picture of what this does to a wealthy white girl yeah. for much of the audience to understand how heartbreaking addiction is. But for the purposes of the film, it brings Robert Wakefield to that tremendous speech at the end. And it mm-hmm. is absolutely the most important to me, I think the line of the movie, which is, about the war on drugs. There is a war on drugs and many of our family members are the enemy. And I don't know how you wage war on your own family. You know, how do you do that? Kills me every time I watch. It kills me. And that is the truth. That is the key line for the movie, essentially. And just as far as policy, how do you make policy about this? And it also foreshadows where we are now with the um, opiate epidemic and how uh, they talk about trucks coming over the border in and out or not being searched or what, what can you do and how this is going to be the the Mm -hmm. final frontier essentially and how much worse it's gotten everything is. And, you know, if they made traffic today, it would be, boy, you would need a few more cities essentially and a few more sides of this, uh, this tale. I also think it's, Benicio del Toro's best performance. He is amazing in this movie, uh, largely in another language or, you know, in Spanish. He is just 
just subtle things, even if he isn't speaking English or Spanish, like one of his great scenes to, to get an assassin, he has to go in a gay bar and it's just kind of wordless. This thing that happens between them essentially like looks um, del Toro does so much. He is the outsider in this film. As far as, I mean, they're all kind of outsiders, Erica Christensen with her group. She's the outsider in the group. Like there, there's several Zeta Jones doesn't fit in with the other moms anymore in San Diego, but like the key outsider the man who is so alone is Benicio del Toro. You can tell he's terribly probably in love with his partner's wife and, you know, everything people he thought he was working for, for the right reasons are wrong and who is using who. And uh, yeah, really great. Performance. The only, the only corrupt moment he has in the film is when he lies to Anna about how Manolo yep. died. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's not corrupt, but he is operating in a ultimately corrupt system from the tourists. He speaks the truth to the tourists, you know, call the police. They'll tell you where your car is. Be quiet. Don't speak of this particular corruption, Manolo. And he's just trying to survive as somebody who is not compelled by greed and power. And he's absolutely wonderful. Obviously. Did he win for that? Del Toro, yeah. Good. God. He you just feel him. He's wonderful. Um yes, he uh Del Toro won for this, and then three years later, he was nominated in the same category of best supporting actor for 21 grams, which he was also just tremendous in. Yeah. Yeah, he's great in 21 grams. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to find I, I must be missing a page here because I'm trying to find what he says to those agents oh here it is okay we need lights for the park so kids can play at night so it's safe everybody likes baseball everybody likes parks take an interest in tijuana now that's what i'm talking about my friends mm -hmm. there is no future if there is no safety and there is no safety so he's just trying to create one safe space another like person who is just trying to make a clean mark in this world exactly and, yep and it's little solutions you can do now that are key. And we love him in this movie because he is always trying to keep everyone safe. His partner, yep. Anna, you know, uh, it's a very different character arc than Robert Wakefield, who we meet having a drink that, it, that he offers to his, ma his maid, his aide, and it's too strong for the aide, you know, and he smiles. Yes. He's constantly drinking. It's all about FaceTime with the president and being in control and power and sitting on a bench until his last line is, you know, obviously that great speech, but we're just here to listen. You know, he has, he makes a couple great points, um, but he, his wife tells him it's about, you know, it's about his ego, but the greatest point is when they're on the plane and he says, why is there no one from recovery on this plane? Yes. People do not think about recovery. and. It's to answer this question that Erica, I'm sorry to bring it back to her. I know I'm kind of double dipping, but um, no, but she says true, in her opening, it is true. I, hey, I'm uncomfortable in the crowd. I know you're afraid and that's okay. That is her wish that she says to Seth while she's high on drugs. And that is the thing that his parents could, her parents 
could listen to, but what, what they hear from her is my daughter is one of the leading students in her school mm-hmm. and he is in denial. And so they become connected through recovery. Um, my drug counselor always said the child with an addiction is the conscience of the family. You know, it's, it's people like general Salazar says addicts treat themselves. They overdose in response to Wakefield's, what do you do with recovery? And that is very much, people look at addicts as a choice mm-hmm. um, and a character flaw combination. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, it affects everyone. It affects the family. It affects anyone you, that person touches who loves that person or that person yep. loves. It's, it's crazy. So anyway, but yeah. this idea of passing the buck in the drug the drug war, it's wrapped up so well by the outgoing general who tells that Khrushchev story, you know, write the two letter story when yes. you get in trouble, open the first letter, blame it on me. And then the second letter is write two, write letters. two letters. There is no responsibility. Nope. It's just constant buck passing. And yeah, there and are real gonna, lives at stake. Yeah, there are. Ahead. It's kind of like I just it's off topic, but it's related just finished watching the hbo series we own this city which was um, tremendous and it was we own a, this city <laughs> yeah a, a based on a true story and at the end it kind of goes into the corruption of the city of baltimore and how new person will climb up or get promoted and then that person goes out because of uh, corruption then the next person comes in and they show a couple minutes of their speech and then there's words on the screen telling you that, nope, that person had to leave too because they were corrupt and it keeps going on and on. You brought up recovery. That is a valid point. And it's very important in this. I know Soderbergh was, I don't think he had a personal um, connection to drugs or none that he had shared in any of the interviews I was reading, but he said about mid nineties, he started to think about um, just being interested in telling a story about drugs. looking at all sides, like, why is this an issue? What, what does um, an addict look for and what can we do about it and what's going on and just wanting to look at all sides of it. So he was fascinated by this issue and in thinking about recovery and bringing up your drug counselor, I I was reminded of um, my cousin who had some substance abuse issues and another one who was an alcoholic and thinking about, you know, really where we wish we could start it with, with them and with everyone is why do they feel a need to um, look for that escape or whatever the escape hatch is like someone being uncomfortable in the crowd for Erica Christensen or what is going on? Um, like why, why are drugs appealing to begin with, or what is, what is going on there? And I think, you know, it's just a film that raises as many questions as it does make you start to think about judgments that you've made in your life, but also your family members and anyone, you know, who've experienced this, I think, yeah, it's a very, very powerful movie. I go back and forth on which Soderbergh he is better from 2000. I think this is the epic, the masterpiece that it deserved best picture. I personally, because I've had a million health issues, I relate more to the Aaron Brockovich story. So I kind of go back and forth. I wish these could have tied because I think 
looking at these and bureaucracy and institutions letting us down, he is telling very interesting stories about these issues in two movies that kind of play well together. It's like, why pick apple or orange? Put them together. I think those are, yeah, they both should have won Best Picture. Yep. I agree 100%. And I appreciate you sharing your, you know, story. I I lost my uncle and my cousin and, you know, yeah. I'm lucky to be alive. And I, you know, I heard a lot of people and that's on me and, you know, I try to make up for that mm. now. And I, who knows if I will ever be able to. No. Um, I'm just but, glad you're doing so well. And oh, yeah. thank you. We're all thanks. proud of you. All of your friends. Hey, hey we're going to make Rob cry again. Uh, yeah. no. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to turn into Oprah on this podcast. <laughs> not at all. Yes. Well, um, yeah, that's very nice. I appreciate it. And, um, but the story is it's everywhere, right? It is. Yep. It's, it's everything. It's, uh, Wakefield's gre- uh, uh, obvious functional alcoholism Definitely. and need to be in a position of power. Miguel yeah. Ferrer's Eduardo Ruiz, um, he said, I got greedy, didn't I? You know, it's the greed um, for Catherine Zeta-Jones. I mean, I have more empathy for her. It's hard because she becomes a boss and orders mm-hmm. the killing of two people, but she is trying to survive as well and keep her family, you know, I mean, obviously she becomes bad, but this drug war changes everyone it touches. And it's, there's so much education in this film too, as we are. um, Yeah. There's drama and also, yeah, we're learning so much. We learn about trafficking distribution, the legal constructs, the political greed. I mean, all these pharmaceutical companies are all making money on this. The military is making money on it. Mm-hmm. The military, the recovery, and also you know the emotional toll on everyone. And it's it's really interesting when he goes to bring to rip Seth out of his classroom, which we all love. Like, yes, we what hope he beats shit. the shit yes. out of that kid. Yeah. yeah, what a little shit. But they're learning Spanish in the class, and it's a great this great line comes from off camera from the the Spanish teacher, and it says, "Ser and estar both mean." to be, but they have very different uses. And, you know, that's <laughs> very basic Spanish that I'm not an expert in, but it's, it's a great line that talks Duality. about. Yep. Yes. 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 Who yeah, are we? And it, where are we it going? Takes you back and forth between the storylines. I mean, you know, we're keeping them apart because of the actors and of course the color and the cinematography, you brought up something really good earlier talking about the limey and how um, we had, or no, it wasn't the limey, out of sight, where we have uh, Jack Foley and Buddy being sort of the reverse image of White Boy Bob and uh, Snoopy. And in this movie, you have partners in a few different, mm. yep, you have um, essentially you have Del Toro and his partner, and then you have Cheadle and Guzman who are so good. I love seeing Don Cheadle in this. He has a, a great moment, especially at the end of the movie, which is just mm. subtle and it plays out on his face. Yeah, and, he smiles. Uh, yes, yeah. 
Yep. There's a lot to this. No, I mean, look, out of sight is always fun. And there is not a lot of fun in traffic. The only fun is with uh, Ray and Monty. Between them and them giving Eduardo Ruiz shit. (laughs) And and it's in service for the terrible loss Monty has to feel when he loses his his um, loses Ray in that explosion. But God, it's so funny. Like, which happens the, in Mexico, we lose a partner too. Yeah, yeah, we lose Manny exactly. Yeah. There's also the D, the two DEA agents who are also um, yes, you know, it, working with um, Javier Rodriguez or Rodriguez. But um, yeah. and a wife of of a man and um, like, how do they grapple when when the shit hits the fan? Essentially, you know, uh, the partner's wife, let's go burn his clothes. And then you have Zeta Jones, like my kid is not going to live the life that I lived. Uh, you have another wife, of course, with Amy Irving's character, who mm-hmm. at first is being fiercely protective of like, well, she's fine. And then, well, no, you need to do something. And um, yeah. 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 It's a film. I think that gets richer and deeper the more you watch it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's overwhelming otherwise. (laughs) Well, it's so like, it's so cool. Soderbergh always has these fun um, patterns or structures and it's called, you know, it's called traffic. It's obviously about drug trafficking, but like all, and I'm sure this is obvious to everyone. I have a question for you, but, um, all, all, not all, there's a couple cuts, but many of the transitions are pans from cars to people on streets or pans between people passing each other on streets as the stories intersect. It's always uh, like driving or moving in traffic. You know, oh, interesting. Human, yeah, where human beings of all types are always running into each other. There's the traffic of human emotion, butting heads, and these obviously these stories um, coming together. Yeah. yeah, it's it's brilliant, um, and and they're often connected uh, in the the meter of the moment, such as after Manolo's uh, or after Ray is killed, we then follow fire trucks um, in Mexico. Yeah, past you know. The fire trucks are, uh, I've got this wrong. I'm sorry. After Ray dies, we file, we follow fire trucks, which we think, you know, are connected to that explosion to Manny yes. waiting to eat his bestag where he gets pulled in and is also killed. So it's emergency upon emergency. That, that was one of those. Wow. Rob, awesome. that's really great. Yeah. I had a question for you though. Sure. What do you, what do you think? So it's so it's so great and clear. Oh, by the way, in Aaron Brockovich, the only time we break the yellow, do you remember? Is it goes blue for the one cutaway of Mark March Helgenberger's husband throwing stones at PG and E. That's the only time. Really, he, that's interesting. When we find out she's got a, had a hysterectomy and a mastectomy, and it cuts to him throwing rocks at the plant. It's in blue. Mm. I thought that was really cool. That is a cool touch. Yeah. You had a um, question on traffic. Yeah. So it's very clear that um, 
yellow is Mexico and blue is Wakefield's kind of legal world in Cincinnati and DC and Erica Christensen as well in the recovery. But the La Jolla piece and the Monty and Ray piece, go ahead. Oh, I was going to tell you what he, he wanted it to look just very bright and idyllic and sunshine bright. So he kind of over um, exposed the film mm-hmm. just to make it very lush and um, saturated. Yeah. 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 That's what he was going for. Kind of the, the lifestyle of the rich sort of. Yeah. Right. Yep. I love that. And, and it, it, I, I feel like, do you feel like it changes a little bit? Like, because when Michael Douglas comes to the border or when we come to the border or we are enmeshed in like the, what would be the front line of the drug war, mm-hmm. that lushness kind of fades and it becomes more realistic, no matter who from what story is there, it's suddenly we get a more, a more a real color in the photography. I agree with you. I think especially to uh, scenes that are shot outside are kind of overblown, yes. but it starts to get a little bit darker and you do mm-hmm. get a sense of foreboding and uh, the realism and the, the heaviness of, of her choices and what they're all doing starts to weigh. Yeah. 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 Like M- Michael Douglas is no longer in the, the blue. And when she's telling her story at the end in recovery, it's no longer blue and it's, it's really cool. Yeah, they're um, moving away from where they were, old patterns or things are changing emotionally. Again, subtle emotions. Because I know sometimes people accuse Soderbergh of being like kind of an icy filmmaker, but there's a lot of emotional punch going on just below. I think this one, though, he did want to take more of a docudramatic feel. Yeah. There's, I mean, to me, there's plenty of emotion. I don't know. I, I agree. I don't, I don't get that. No, I, I, I read that criticism with some people or they thought that just the Erica Christensen character. And I'm like, were you paying no attention when Benicio was on screen or or Don Cheadle's character? Like, I thought it was a very emotionally uh, gripping film. Yeah. And to your point, like people uh, in solitude or isolated, like we have uh, Javier alone in his car after Manolo yeah. was killed slamming the dashboard which then you know he pit, he walks out of the car he leaves the car in the middle mm-hmm. of the street and walks out and then we get one of those pan transitions to Catherine zeta jones on the way to meet with obregon so yeah. it, this casualty is only going to be made worse with this higher up cartel yeah we have monty alone you know it just keeps spiraling yeah yeah no oh, such a good one but I know uh, that's all the movies that we had time for today. But before I do let you go, I mean, Soderbergh's career has been massive and he keeps making more movies. So, Rob, are there any other favorites you have of his work that you would like to recommend people check out? I would. I mean, look, I like. I, I mean, I like even even when he doesn't like these four are my favorites, but um you know, even when he is trying something that isn't exactly to my taste, like there's parts of it that I love. Like uh, I like parts of No Sudden Move. I thought it was yeah. great. It, it, I, I didn't love it as much as some of our friends did. I agree with you. Yes. But I love what he gives to Don Cheadle and Benicio. Yeah. Like I love what he gives to his actors. I liked Bubble when he doesn't use actors. I, I loved 
behind the candelabra where he mm-hmm. like oh that's brings, very good yeah yeah you think you think robert wakefield and then liberace like how he uses michael douglas is mm-hmm. so great you know and the oceans movies are so fun i i still haven't seen logan lucky oh um, rob you need to check that out it is i so know good. i know this yeah, is my it's secret a lot how about of you what, favorites um, you know, I love King of the Hill and Sex, Lies, and Videotape, these uh, four as well. I think there's just so many with Soderbergh that we could have done. Um, I've liked some of his other ones that he has tackled recently. I would have to open up a document and uh, look, but my goodness, I think, you know, I don't, I thought the Magic Mics were fun. I don't necessarily love oh, them yeah. as much as other people have. Yeah. Ocean's Eleven, same thing. They're fun. But I think this was kind of his peak, his art film uh, phase. And I love that he's kind of a John Huston or Howard Hawks. He's always kind of whatever is interesting him, then he will do it. But there are still some signatures and some themes that we see going throughout and how, you know, he will keep trying things and it pays off in other movies girlfriend experience was a a good oh, experimental like work the yeah. informant i really oh, enjoyed the gosh. informant yes okay. with matt damon that was terrific and uh Absolutely. yeah there's so many yeah my favorite soderbergh besides these four is the informant oh my god i had a blast mark whitaker i think i smiled the entire film it was just so much fun I don't know, Bob, you tell me like such a, I mean, that movie to think, I know we're wrapping up, but to think about Javier Rodriguez Rodriguez doing this totally, uh, incredibly uh, moralistic sacrifice where he, you know, does the right thing. And when asked, how does he feel? He says, I feel like a traitor. Yeah. How earth shatteringly sad that is that there's no right move and then we go to the informant where it's just a lying ass corrupt liar i know completely unafraid of being caught and then when he does he's like still running game it's more corruption but as a comedy it's it's really fun it is and i love the marvin hamlish score and how self-conscious it is throughout the whole movie he uses music just so well yeah but like this was just such a pleasurable way to spend the afternoon. So I want to thank you, Rob, so much for doing this. Really thank appreciate you, it. Come back anytime, of course. Next time, uh, come up with a new idea. I think I kind of backed you into it. Like we're doing Soderbergh, but I really appreciated this. Oh, thank thank you for the time. I know I know we went long, and That's we okay. can go forever on these movies. You did a great yes. job of keeping you it too. contained. <laughs> yeah. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting 
filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.